And if you've not been with us, we're, we're in a series right now. We're studying Elijah, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, and we're a few weeks into it. We're just going to study this till uh, spring goes into summer. And this morning we're in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 20. And if you're somewhat familiar with our downtown, and if you've been here for a while, you may know what I'm about to refer to. So people who listen on the podcast from other places, sorry, you won't know what I'm talking about, but uh, the two or three of you who, <laughs> who do. But if you, uh, if you come into downtown on Augusta Road, you know, it, it, uh, it merges onto Main Street, and... Uh, as it makes the curve past Greenville High and past the baseball stadium and you're getting close to Main Street, on the right is a vacant field. It's after the Funnel Cakes building and before you get to... to... By the way, that's hilarious. I usually don't talk about local businesses, but three or four businesses tried to make a go of it in that little spot and then finally someone painted it like a rainbow and put rhinoceroses in the window and said, let's sell Funnel Cakes. It's doing great. So, business plan, business plan. But anyway, after the Funnel Cakes building, there's a vacant lot, and there used to be this grand old Victorian house there. And it was completely demolished about a year and a half ago. I think it was about a year and a half ago. And I actually talked with a guy who was in the business who, who did the actual demolition of that house. He said it was full of all this beautiful, beautiful paneling and craftsmanship, and the instructions were uh, in the owner's will that it be completely destroyed, that no one rehab it or occupy it. That building's been gone for a year and a half, maybe two years, and unless you've lived here and knew that that was there, you can't tell that there was ever a house there. Now, now folks who've lived here for a while, there'd be some folks who have that in their recollection, their memory, but unless you happen to be one of those people or you're very observant, just from the appearance of it, it's like, it's like it was never there. That's the point. It's like it was never there. And 20, 30 years from now, which is nothing in history, there'll probably be little saplings that are becoming trees, and it will truly look like there was never a house there, and there was one there just a little while ago. And there's probably places in your hometown like that, or maybe you know other places in Greenville like that. But that really is a visual parable of different parts of Israel's history where, you know, this is the one nation of God. This is the one chosen people of God. There is no other story like Israel's story. And you could even say this, and this would, not only would this not be a stretch, it would be very biblically uh, appropriate to say the story of Israel is the story. The story of God and His people is the story. And the refrain that you keep getting through the whole Bible, and this refrain shows up literally from Genesis to Revelation, is God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the story. But you'll hit these points in in the story of God's people where it's like you can't tell that that was ever said. Or that God ever burst in. 
or that he did the miracles that he did or that he rescued them the way he rescued them. And maybe there's a few people that remember and actually have a recollection of who God is and what he did. But it's like no one, it's like no one else remembers that the house was in that field. And Elijah's ministry is during one of those times. And we just started this a few weeks back, and Jonathan Davis, another one of our pastors, you know, set this up by saying it's just an awful time in the history of Israel. This is a time when Israel's not one kingdom, it's two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, the bigger one, is what we call Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. And the capital up here is Samaria. The capital down here is Jerusalem. And Judah had mostly bad kings and a few good kings, but not many. Israel had no good kings. And the one they have now is awful, Ahab, awful. He's married to a horrible woman, Jezebel, kills prophets of the Lord. This is God in this passage waking people up and in a sense saying, if you have forgotten, I remember. I am who I am. You know, that is his name. When you see Lord in all caps, that's, that's how English Bibles translate Yahweh, his personal name. God is more like a title, but Yahweh is his personal name. And it means some, it's super hard to translate, but it means something like I am who I am. And so therefore, he's the only one who can have that name. Because he's the only one who is who God is. That God says, I remember who I am, and I remember who you are. And I'm still here. And before I read the passage, let me say this too. Some of the words in, in the passage are in bold. And I'm not doing this to uh, be patronizing or, or hold your hand. But I just, I, I don't do that often. I just wanted you to hear the thread that is very intentionally all through this passage. We we can't miss it if we're going to understand it. But I want you to think about this. The question on the table, in a sense, is, is God real? And here's what I want to warn you about before we read the passage, is don't look at that as a dated question. That that's old, and that was then, and this is now. We come to that question differently, but the question is still on the table. The question in this context is, is the Israelite God real or is Baal real? The question now is, is God real because it is religion real? Is worshiping a God real or is religion inherently dangerous? But there are different ways of coming at the same question. Is God real? 1 Kings 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I... Even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, 
but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench upon, about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for worship. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for our city. Thank you for our people. Thank you for each other. We pray that you'll help us to hear you and to not just know but to experience that you are God and we are not. And we ask this 
In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up in Mississippi, a sharecropper's son. I'm just kidding. I'm not a sharecropper's son. I just seemed like that would be the next sentence after I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up in Mississippi, an insurance salesman's son. And, uh, uh, but in Mississippi, I'm from Jackson, which would be like Columbia, the capital city. It's right in the middle of the state. New Orleans was sort of like our Charleston. And there really are some parallels. It was about the same drive away, and it's a port city, and tons of history, and tons of tourism. Just super unique look. No other city looks exactly like it. So grew up going to New Orleans, and I love New Orleans. And um, all my children have now been to New Orleans, and has a soft spot in my heart. But uh, this thing that you'll hear if you read or, or, or just talk to people about the history of New Orleans is that uh, one of the local foods there is gumbo. You know, gumbo is this wonderful seafood. It's just, it's really not even adequate to call it a soup. It's, it's like a, more like a stew, but it's not just a stew. It's this just very unique look and taste, and everything is in it. Everything's in it. And you'll hear people say that gumbo, besides being an indigenous food for New Orleans, it's, it's really a metaphor for New Orleans itself. It's this hodgepodge. And something that's unique about New Orleans is that it's just, from its beginning, it's always been a place where uh, a, a nun might live next door to a prostitute who lived next door to the bank president. They're just all kind of crammed in there together. That's less so as it gentrifies, but just every kind of person crammed in there together. But gumbo is a, is a metaphor for, in some ways, religion in New Orleans. And if you ever visit New Orleans, you'll, you'll find out that there, even to this day, there are things that, ling- that linger that are local customs and local practices, and it's part Roman Catholicism, but it's part voodoo, because there was a Haitian influence in New Orleans and, and, and other things. Now, I think when, when we hear that, we go, why would you add Catholicism and voodoo? Why would you do that? Well, because that's what people do. Let me give you another example. If, if you've ever been listening to music from the late 60s and early 70s, and you've noticed that there are all these references to Jesus in music back then, and the references are by people that may not have really been followers of Jesus, and you've wondered, why are they talking about Jesus very freely in their music and kind of like, like they're really on great terms with him, but they don't seem to be Christians. What, what, what is that? Well, uh, late 60s, early 70s, you had this sort of weird mix of um, Jesus and hippie counterculture. Well, why would you mix those two things together? Well, because that's what we do. And the, the sort of $65 word for this is syncretism. And maybe the the easiest way to explain syncretism is where I grab a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And either this or that is usually the dominant religion in my area. Not always, but usually. So I grab a little bit of this and a little bit of that and maybe a little bit of that too to, to sort of cafeteria plan a spirituality that works for me. That's syncretism. I craft from this and that 
a spirituality that, that works for me. This passage is when Israel is, um, is having its gumbo. It's syncretistic. Israel hasn't completely said, Yahweh doesn't exist. There is no Yahweh. It hasn't said that. Uh, the altar of the Lord is broken down, so things are not well. But look at the way Elijah, the way he frames this. Look, look in verse 21, what he says to this group of prophets and people. Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? That's an interesting way to say that. He's not saying that you have now joined the atheist society of the Middle East. You're limping, and that's a little play on words because that's, that, that was the action of the bell prophets when they went, went around their bull. They limped. He said, how long will you people go limping between two opinions? In other words, you're dabbling in the worship of Yahweh, and you're dabbling and now more trending toward the worship of Baal. You have to be one or the other. What is the thread that runs all through this passage? Is God God or is Baal God? And when we say God, we mean the one who made everything, who really has all the power, who controls our lives. It's funny. You know, talking about a God controlling your life, maybe that resonates with you, maybe it doesn't. And then when we hit crisis, we feel like, I need someone to yell to and say help. We want God. So is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is he that? Or is Baal that? Or is someone or something else that? That's the question on the table. And in this passage, in no uncertain terms... God doesn't just say, but God shows, I am God. I am who I am. And he does it very vividly. I want to look at three ways that he shows that. That he shows that he is God. He is the real living God. Three things here. He remembers. He answers. And he is both and. He remembers, he answers, and he's both and. How do you see God remembering? All right, let's go back to the context. Bad time, bad time. Wicked king, wicked queen, Jezebel, who kills prophets who serve Yahweh. Rampant Baal worship. The nation is trending more and more toward just being a Baal-worshiping entity. Jezebel has slayed prophets. There are now 450 prophets of Baal. There are not 450 ministers in our denomination in the state of South Carolina. South Carolina, as you'll hear in the presentation in between the services, is almost four times larger than all of what's now Israel. Did you you know that? South Carolina is almost four times larger than the present-day Israel. There are 450 prophets of Baal. They're in every little hamlet and village. 
plus 400 prophets of this other horrible deity called Asherah. Things are not going well. And in that context, God sends Elijah. So you've got this contest. You read the story, the account. But listen to what Elijah says when it's, re- when it's about to go down. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, and that's not a familiar term. That means something like the evening offering. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Now, when he addresses God that way, he doesn't say, O Creator, or O Great King. When he says, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, what is he saying? He's addressing God in terms of the God who makes promises to people, and even if those people forget the promises, he remembers. And I don't just mean that he recalls them. He remembers them, and he keeps his promise. Have you ever... um, Have you ever seen this, or this may actually have been in your family, where you have an elderly couple, and they've been married all this time, and then finally, one of the spouses, their mind goes. Have you ever seen this? And just something that is is beyond moving is where, let's say for our purposes where maybe this elderly wife, her mind goes. She has dementia. She has other medical issues. And she doesn't really know who she is anymore. Uh, she can't recall their, their wedding. Maybe she doesn't know her children or grandchildren anymore. And you've got this husband and... Now, finally, after all these years of being married, he fulfills his his vows by remembering for her. I mean, not just remembering, eat your breakfast or, or, or take this medication, but he remembers their story. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has a bride who loses her mind. And I'm not being melodramatic. Like, we forget who we are. We did it in the Old Testament, and we do it now. We forget who we are. We forget who He is. We forget the marriage covenant that binds us together. And he remembers for us and doesn't leave us. Because here's the thing. Like, you could read this passage and go, yeah, Elijah is the one remembering. That doesn't matter at some level if he's the only person there remembering. I mean, that means he's like the Civil War reenactor. You know, if you're a Civil War reenactor, 99.999% of the population doesn't do that. They they look at the other .001 and go, huh, 
I'm glad that's interesting for you. If Elijah is this lone voice on the mountain saying, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, you have not forgotten your covenant and your promises, answer us, then he's just kind of like a reenactor. He's a reenactor of Israel's past. But what is he saying? God, you are who you are. You have not forgotten. The real God remembers and keeps his covenant. Second thing, the real God answers. Uh, look at this. This is another thread in the passage. Go back to verse 24. Elijah sets up this challenge. So he says to the prophets of Baal, verse 24, You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Okay, so then you go down to verse 26. He lets them go first. So they cry out from morning till noon, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And just in case you missed it, go down to verse 29. And this is, this is not just information. This is, this is writing. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then what is the contrast? Verse 37. Elijah repairs the altar. He sets up the sacrifice. He says that you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. In verse 37, he says, Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. That this people may know. And then verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. The real God answers. And you need to know, this is a recurring theme in the prophets, of the difference between an idol and the real God. Idols can't talk. Idols can't hear. Idols can't see. You'll see expressions like dumb idols because they cannot answer you. I wouldn't give my heart to something that can't answer me. Oh, hang on. Yes, we do. The real God remembers, the real God answers, and the real God is both and. And if you stick around, you'll hear us talk about this, that God is both and. He's not the either or God. He's either the wrathful, angry, powerful Mount Sinai God of the Old Testament, or He's the loving, compassionate, merciful God of the New Testament. We do not buy either or because the Bible just simply doesn't back it up. But the real God is both and. And it is interesting when you look at the deities throughout history, even in world religions today, they are either or. The real God is both and. How do you see that in this passage? Look at his wrath. Elijah coming off this miraculous consumption of the burnt offering, yells to the people, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And you know, it's a little tempting to leave that part out. But here's what you need to understand. When Elijah did that, that's not because, you know, Elijah had anger issues. He's fulfilling something that should have been done preemptively way, way back. It says in the law of God, if someone in your community 
When you cross that Jordan River, when you leave this wilderness, when you go into the promised land, when you've got your own land, when you set up your own homes, when you receive your inheritance, if someone in your community says, hey, come over here and worship this God too, you are to give that person the death penalty. That was the law in the books. Elijah is finally enacting something that was supposed to be done way back. Do not rehabilitate those men. Execute those men. It's the wrath of God. And where's the mercy of God? Look in verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And what else will they know? That you have turned their hearts back. Not you will turn their hearts back. You have turned their hearts back. Why would God turn their hearts back? They're bad. They, they are worshiping a horrible pagan deity. Why would God turn their hearts back? Why would God turn anybody's heart back? Because he's merciful. Well, which is it? Is he the slaughter, the Baal priest God, or is he to have mercy on a stiff-necked, disobedient people God? He's both and. And just so I can hide behind a bigger figure, you know, when in doubt, hide behind Jesus, never a bad idea. Okay, so get behind him. When Jesus tells parables and he puts his heavenly father in the parable, when there's a God character in the parable, read the parables. Sometimes the God character may be a king and he, he cares about these subjects and so he sends these servants. And he sends these servants to talk to them. And his subjects kill the servants. And by the way, guess who the servants are in those parables? Prophets. Like Elijah. He sends them these prophets. He sends them these servants. They kill the servants. They kill the servants. And so finally, the God character, the king in the parable will say, well, they'll respect my son. So I'll send my son. And so the king sends his son and they kill him. And those parables end by the king saying, those ones who killed my son, killed my servants, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. That's the God character that Jesus is willing to put in the parables. And he'll put a God character in a parable who has this just hard-hearted, worldly, evil son that says, hey, Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but let's pretend like you are. So give me the inheritance And he goes off and he blows it, this hard-earned wealth. And he comes back with his tail between his legs. And this father, when his son is a long way off, does what Judean men did not do. Men did not run for leisure or exercise in first century Judea. And he hikes up his tunic and he runs down this road and he just grabs him. And he kisses him and he embraces him and he throws him a feast. And that's the God character. And he's bad, that son. So which is it? Is he the slaughter, 
slaughter the wicked ones who killed my son, or is he the run out and kiss the bad son? He's both and. How do you reconcile all that together? And some of you know where I'm going with this. Um, you know where you really see both and in this passage? It's a character that we don't talk about a lot in this passage. The bull. The bull didn't sin. But the bull became the burnt offering. What, was the, what is the burnt offering supposed to convey? This bull did not sin against me. And now we're going to cut its throat open. It takes some doing to slaughter, to, to bring a bull down and then slaughter it. We're going to cut its throat open. We're going to cut it into pieces. Because it's going to represent you. It's, it's a visual. This is an optic. That, that this, this is you. And we'll cut it up. And we'll put it here. And normally you would, you'd make the fire, but not in this case. God made the fire to say, I accept this offering as the one true God. Not because I need a bull. Not because I need religion. But to show you that this visual of substitution is accepted. Where do all those burnt offerings point that God became man. The Word became flesh. And He dwelt in our midst. And He kept God's law perfectly. And then all the sins of God's people, past, present, and future, were put on Him on the cross. And fire didn't fall from heaven, but the wrath of God did. So much so that he yells, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the wrath of God and the mercy of God at the same time. It, that man on that cross is what God thinks of our sin, and the man on that cross is not me. And the man on that cross is not you. Because God is love, God is merciful, He's both and. Now, if we stop there, I think it's just kind of easy to go right on. Our God is the true God, and the other gods are not. You know, boom. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts before we wrap up. Well, I was going to move that chair, but there's a violin in it. I'm going to sit on the stage. If a, if a friend of yours came to you and, and, and did something that friends don't often do, if they were really honest about, you really deeply hurt me. Usually we just sulk or fester or whatever. But, but let's say this friend really is a friend to you and says, you really hurt me. And I've actually had sleepless nights because of this thing you did or said. All right, so if you were listening to that, just kind of listening like this, kind of smiling, or like this, is that sin? No. It's not a violation of the law of God, but it's, it's extremely unwise. 
because your body is saying, maybe I'm going to say the words I'm sorry. And in that, if you have a moment like that, don't say I'm sorry you feel that way. Don't, don't say that. Say, please say I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you, if you do that, it's unwise because your body is saying, I'm going to say the words that I think you want me to say. I, I'm not really hearing you. That's what your body is saying. And when we come in here and do this thing that we do, and let's say it's a moment like when we confess our sins. We did that a little while. We do that every week. We confess our sins. Is it sin for me to just kind of easily read the words with my legs crossed? or my arm around the chair, is that sin? That, that's not sin, necessarily, my body language. But that might be a little dashboard light to say that this is not real. And when we come here, we are worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a woman named Annie Dillard. She uh, won a Pulitzer Prize years ago with a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. But in another one of her books called Teaching a Stone to Talk, she said this, On the whole, I don't find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats. I don't see any, so, you know. But uh, straw hats and velvet hats to church, we should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Now, am I reading that to say, be more scared of God if you're not scared of God? Well, no and yes. I don't mean be scared of God or He'll smash you. I mean, God is God. The living God is the living God. You know, Jesus said we cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then the next sentence, doggone it, he said you cannot serve both God and money. And all week we serve it and love it. And money doesn't remember our story. And money will not answer us. Money is not both and. It's either or. You have it or you don't. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been reconciled to the one true God. Don't give your heart to something else. Don't give your heart to money. 
your things. Don't give your heart to work. Don't give your heart to your body as if it's more real than your soul. Give your heart to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need your help. And we feel the need to say what the man said in the Gospels to your son, that we believe, help us in our unbelief. We limp between two opinions. We worship you, and we don't believe you're real. We serve you, and we serve our stuff. We give you our heart, and we give everything else our heart. So please work in our hearts, loving Father, and point us to your Son. Turn our hearts back. And renew in us the love for you that will satisfy us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.